All right, good morning, everyone. Looks like we're at time. So we're going to continue on and finish up Habakkuk this morning, and then we're going to move into Zephaniah, see how far we get into that, and then we'll be off for the next few weeks come January, what would that be, 11th, something like that, we'll be back. So a couple weeks off for Christmas, and then we'll be back into the swing of things. Before we do that, we'll begin with our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so I know last week we got somewhat into Habakkuk chapter 3, but just so we get a little bit of a running head start and hit on a few more things, we're going to go ahead and back up into 3 verse 1. If you recall from last week, so Habakkuk is giving these complaints to the Lord, then the response from the Lord, then he gives another complaint, and then the response from the Lord. So we have this back and forth that he is giving but always within that faith of trusting that the Lord will answer and looking for that answer. And Habakkuk's complaints, you know, aren't because of a lack of faith or an ill will, but rather it is pleasing to the Lord that, you know, his people would come to him with these complaints and with that trust that he will answer. So we had that back and forth into, from chapters 1 and 2, And then into three, we really get a shift in the literary style. And it's really seen by a lot, and I mean, it seems pretty convincing that it is a psalm of some sort, given the salahs that are along the margins, and then at the very end, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So we see that same thing all within the psalms. But within the psalms, much like with Proverbs or that type of literature, when we have these different clauses, they'll sometimes be an intensifying from one clause to the next. And so we'll see that here in these Psalms, and we'll point that out as we go in. Are there any questions or anything before we get into the material? Anything from last week that we need to cover? All right. So into 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. If you know how to pronounce that, good for you. I don't, so that's my best stab at it. It says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So that language of hearing, we've seen that all throughout the Minor Prophets, all throughout the Old Testament of hear, listen to what the Lord has to say, and to hear and listen means to actually you know, do something about it doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. So he's saying, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So also that language of remembering with the Lord, much like us is hearing, is to do something. Lord, remembering is for him to do something. The Lord remembering his covenant with his people means that he hasn't forgotten about them. He remembers them, and he's going to act. And so the Lord has remembered. And so he's saying, in wrath, remember that mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light Rays flashed from his hand, and there he, and there he veiled his power. So the mercy we remember is much like with the Exodus. So we have this working of the Lord, and this being carried out now throughout the nations. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And then we get to this language of brightness, and there he veiled his power. So on one hand, we have this brightness that is shown forth, but then also a veiling of that power. So we have the clouds of the Old Testament 
you know, covering the fullness of his glory. And the veiling of his power, it's actually, it looks like it, from my study of it, looks like it is a hotbox, which it's the only time used in the Old Testament. So this veiling of his power, we even get that in our, one of our favorite Christmas hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, where is it? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And so the glory of the Lord coming down in man, veiled in the flesh of man, that same type of imagery here. So he veiled, there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So first the earth and then the nations, and then the eternal mountains were scattered. So all this pestilence that is coming. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high, or its hands on high. So again, the response of creation. Again, this is all the prayer of Habakkuk to the Lord. So acknowledging all these mighty acts that he has done. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Saw that same imagery in Nahum there. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed, threshed the nations in anger. And here we get a little bit of the messianic language popping up in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. So again, salvation Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord saves that language for the salvation of your anointed, your Mashiach, your Messiah, the salvation of your anointed ones, your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Right, what imagery does that pull out? Crushing the head of the wicked. Yeah, all the way back into Genesis there, crushing the head. We even get this, especially in Psalm 110. And so we want to turn there a little bit just to point out these connections that are present in the language, but that in their best, best efforts of translating, they missed out on some of these connections. So we'll turn to Psalm 110. This is a, some of the famous passages of, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, the Lord saying, you know, how is it that David, you know, Lord said to my Lord, how is that? So that's where this is coming from. And we get verses two and three. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then here in verses 5 and 6 is where we really get this language of crushing. The Lord is at your right hand. He will not shatter but crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will crush, not shatter chiefs, but crush the head, or the, yeah, the head, singular, over the wide earth. So he will come and he will crush the head over the wide earth. So this is the coming of the Lord here, Lord who's at your right hand. So he will crush the head over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this crushing of the evil foe's head, crushing of the head of the kings on this day of wrath that will come, this day of judgment 
And so just highlighting that, are there any questions or thoughts? Again, just something I had never made that connection, and you absolutely can't see it in the English translations. So just pointing that out of seeing this imagery all throughout Scripture of the crushing of the head and this destruction. Because after you crush someone's head, you know, kind of does away with them. Twenty-third Psalm, mm-hmm. and it was written by someone who took care of sheep. And I think he mentioned before sheep drink, they want to look around to see if there are enemies around. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be a symbolic of dominance over enemies to raise up. I'm just guessing. National mm. Geographic videos, you see all the animals around the water and coal, and they're looking for any lions that are around. So they are alert, but then we'll see in Zephaniah here, maybe we'll get to it today, where they, we have the imagery of the sheep and everything, and then them lying down. And so while we can lift our heads in that confidence, we can also lie down in that confidence that we have that good shepherd. I don't know if the imagery would be them lifting their heads and kind of the dominance, because sheep kind of are the low rung on the animal food chain. They're not good for much. They're pretty dumb, as you are well aware, I'm sure, for, from all the sermons. Pastors love talking about how dumb sheep are and how we are just like them, which we are. So, Anything else? All right, so we'll turn back to Habakkuk. So you have crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And so here in your study note on verse 15, You're saying it's reference to how the Lord delivered Israel at the Red Sea and destroyed his enemies. So again, this Exodus language, this Exodus imagery popping up. You trampled the sea with your horses. And so that's why, you know, with the Lord walking on water. In the ancient times, the water being chaos, a land of the deep where all the deep, dark sea creatures are at. It's the area of chaos and the great unknown. And so the Lord walking on top of it, being victorious over that chaos and trampling it under his feet. Much like with the Red Sea, whenever he parted the Red Sea and let them walk through on dry land. Then Habakkuk continues and he says, I hear and my bone or my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So here it seems kind of like odd imagery in response to these mighty acts of the Lord that, you know, rottenness enters into my bones. It's kind of an odd imagery. At least the commentators and the ones I've been reading have been talking about this. Speak about it in a way of, you know, this rottenness enters into my bones, the fact that you know, with my own legs, I can't stand up. They've just wasted away. I'm in this complete awe of your works. And so I can't stand up. I'm just in awe and amazement of all of these acts of you. So my body is trembling. My lips are quivering and rottenness enters into my bones. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Which again is an odd way of him basically saying, yet I quietly wait for the day where the Lord will save us. But he doesn't put it in that positive way. He puts it in the negative of, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon these enemies. And so that is, you know, we get that in the Lord's Prayer as well with Luther's explanation. is in the third petition, I think, of, you know, hindering all this evil and putting it to death. And so we are praying that he would put an end to this wickedness so we can join 
join in Habakkuk with this prayer that we quietly wait for that day of trouble to come upon, to come upon people who invade us. So we look forward to that day when all the wicked will be will be crushed and they will be the Lord will put an end to them. Right then here in verse 17, we really get this intensifying that we see in some of the Psalms. So he begins by saying, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. So if a fig tree doesn't blossom, okay, that kind of stinks, but I guess we can live without figs. You know, maybe we can have some apples or something else. All right, that'd be fine, you know, that kind of stinks, but we can survive. Nor fruit beyond the vines. Okay, now there's no, not going to be any wine. Okay, figs was bad enough, now no wine. You know, that's getting even worse now. The produce of the olive fail, okay, in that area. Olives in everything, olive oil everywhere. Now you're hitting more close to home. This is what we depend on. It's not just a luxury of figs or wine. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, so absolutely everything we depend on. You have no olives, no food, the flocks are cut off, and there be no herd in the stalls. If all of these would be gone... Continues, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So not just if all these luxuries would be gone, but if all these basic necessities of life, all that we depend on for food, whether that be animals or the crops of the field, if all these would be gone, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. So we get that language in our favorite Reformation hymn, Mighty Fortress, not in both of the translations, only in 656. You know, where they take our goods, fame, child, or wife, that same language, yet all these be gone. You know, it's judged, the deed is done. And so we have that same language of, yeah, if all these are gone, that's fine. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And the Hebrew is just fantastic here. They, it comes across fairly well in the English, which is way more intensified in the Hebrew of, yet I myself, in Yahweh, I will rejoice. Yet I myself, in Yahweh, in the Lord, I will rejoice. You don't need that intensification, but it comes across and it points to that absolute joy that we can have, even if all these things should be gone. We can rejoice in the Lord and what he has given to us. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then to the choir master with stringed instruments. All right, so just a marvelous ending here of we have all these complaints of, you know, the destruction that's going to come. You know, how long, O oh Lord, will this last? But then it ends just with this marvelous trust this marvelous praise of the Lord of if all these things are going to be gone yet I will rejoice in you so just a marvelous template for us in our Christian lives as we see the wickedness in the world and see the greater and greater persecution coming to Christians we can say the same words as Habakkuk of if all these be gone we can still rejoice because of what we have through Christ Mm-hmm. I was just going to comment on how, how this uh, book ends. It's similar to uh, Psalm 73, mm. where the psalmist goes and says how bad things are. And, mm-hmm. But who do I have in heaven except you? And he just rejoiced. So it ends on a high note. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, it sounds like it's very parallel and similar yeah. and an example for us in our distress and discouragement. Mm-hmm. We are too see Christ and his promises. So uh, just, I just want to point that out, Psalm 73. Yeah. Same type of pattern of, okay, all these things are going wrong. 
How long is this going to last? But I trust in you. Great is your name. You know, that same type of pattern. So it's great that we should meditate on those psalms and read them daily and just model that same type of pattern in our own lives. Anything else for Habakkuk before we move on to the next book? All right, well, you guys don't have to turn very far to Zephaniah. Just flip your eyes to the next side of the page here. All right, so Habakkuk was written around 605 is the dating of it. So we're actually going to be backing up in time a little bit. They date Zephaniah somewhere between 640 and 609. So either about four years before Habakkuk was written or... 36 years, something like that, 35. So still in that same type of time period, but a little bit before. And says it's in the reign of Josiah, and we'll get that in verse 1. Before we get into that, it's kind of hard for us to remember all these connections. Okay, what's going on when? Who's Josiah again? Was he a good king? Was he a bad? We have examples of both in the Old Testament, all over the place. And so we get the, get the, the narrative of Josiah laid out in 2 Kings, starting in chapter 22. I want to turn there and read through it a little bit, 22 and 23, because then we get a, a flavor of what's going on during this time and the context that Zephaniah is writing in. And what the king is doing, what the people are doing in response. This will be 2 Kings chapter 22. Not a, not a great king, reigning at 12 years old. And then Ammon, or Ammon, reigns. He's 22 years old. And then now Josiah in chapter 22 was 8 years old. So just a little tiny king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Diah of Boscath. And then here's the important part. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way, walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So here we already get the context of, is Josiah a good king or a bad king? We did right in the sight of the Lord, didn't stray to the right or to the left. So then in verses 3 and following, he's making these repairs to the temple. And then in verse 8, And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book, of, the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And then Shaphan brings it to the king and tells that to him. So here we get this rediscovery of the book of the law, so the law of Moses here. So if you'll back up, remember Manasseh and just these wicked kings, this line of wicked kings coming, this book of the law likely hidden somewhere, you know, somewhere in the church, widespread persecution was coming. You know, you hide it away in a little closet under a few cloths or something. And then it goes unnoticed for a while. But then here it gets rediscovered. And they bring it to Josiah. And then the rest of the chapter, we rest of chapter 22 and end of 23, we get these great reforms that he's doing after he had read these words. He starts to put it into action and to get things back on track, or at least trying to. Get that in verses 19, verses 18. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. So this is Josiah who had wept before the Lord. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see, see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. He brought back word to the king. So then in 23, we get some more of his reforms. So this is his restoration, bringing Israel back to, or due back to faithfulness here. And so that's the context within which Zephaniah is going to be writing his, his book here, is Josiah is trying to bring back all these reforms, and Zephaniah is trying to support him in those ways of calling out the wickedness, calling them to repentance, and letting them know of the coming destruction that will be coming upon them if they do not repent and turn back to the Lord. So that's a little bit of the context, just so whenever we get into verse 1 and saying he's, you know, during the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, we get a little bit of the context of what's going on. So Zephaniah is translated as Yahweh hides or Yahweh is hidden. And so there's kind of two different interpretations to that. One is that Yahweh is going to hide himself again, synonymous with kind of destruction that is coming. He's going to pull back and let this destruction come. Or two, another interpretation is that possibly with Zephaniah likely being born during the time of Manasseh and these wicked kings, that whenever he was born, he was kind of hidden away for a little bit. And so as Yahweh is hidden, so he hid away his messenger that he was going to use later on for this special purpose. So those are the two different possible interpretations, not that one is right and one is wrong. But so that's the name of Zephaniah. Are there any questions on the introductory material? We could have read through Luther. I would encourage you guys to. It's just great. Great introductory material. It's great that they give us an outline and kind of the dating of everything just so we don't turn to Zephaniah 1.1 and say, okay, what's this about? So, good context there. encourage you guys to read it. Are there any questions? So, common with the Minor Prophets, he's not going to be mincing any words here. We're going to get some pretty heavy-handed law. But then towards the end of the book, in chapter 3, we'll get some great joy and restoration at the end. So we get verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, likely the king, the king Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we get the word of the Lord coming to him, not the oracles that we've seen in the other prophets or vision. You know, it could have been, but it's nonetheless the word of the Lord. So again, this isn't him just making up these words that he's going to deliver to the people. It is the word coming from the Lord. Verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Well, he didn't take much time to get, get going on the heavy-handed law. I think I will utterly sweep away everything. So this brings us back to Genesis chapter 6. We'll see a little bit of language in verse 3 and following of this flood imagery and this kind of decreation, if you want to put it that way. So this complete destruction, this sweeping away of everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. So some commentators even point this to the days of creation of man and beast on day six and then the birds and stuff on day five. And so this kind of backtracking of creation, this destruction starting from the top and working its way down to the beginning here along with the flood, which we're not told in the flood account what happened to the fish, but they probably would have been fairly fine. He may have some 
casualties with some logs that are flying through the water. But here, not even the fish of the sea are going to be are going to be kept alive. Sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. So this intensifying of this destruction that's going to come. And we'll see this in light of the last day, even though all throughout, as we've seen with all the minor prophets, at some point he's kind of talking about the last day or imminent judgment that's coming at the hand of one of the other nations. And so we'll see sometimes a both and, sometimes clearly one and not the other. And so we just got to keep our minds open to that and be a little more flexible than we like to be in our Western mindset here. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the adulterous priests along with the priests. So the Lord is going to be stretching out his hand. Not only against Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but also the remnants of Baal. So the remnants of all these pagan nations. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. So those who are, you know, worshiping the Lord on maybe Sunday or Saturday. And then come the next day, they're going to go down to the pagan temple down the street and also worship and swear by, by those pagan gods as well. You, your study note says for Milcom, also known as Molech, the Ammonite idol to whom people sacrifice their children. So one day bowing down to the Lord and then the next day bowing down to an idol that demands child sacrifice. Don't think those two are compatible with one another. But nonetheless, that is what they're doing. So he continues, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. All right, any questions or comments on these first six verses? Again, cheerful start to could be a sermon of his. I don't think I should imitate this of starting out the sermons. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And continues on in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. So we've seen this in the other minor prophets of, you know, silence. He's calling them to silence. And so the Hebrew is has, which is kind of a hush in the English here of Hey, shut up. You know, listen here. Don't talk. This destruction is going to come. And what happens whenever people, you know, try to correct us or point out our flaws? Do we like to stay silent? No, we like to defend ourselves. And we like to try to justify our actions. And so he's saying here, no, be silent. Here's this judgment that's going to come. Here's where you've done wrong. You've you know, sworn by the Lord and also sworn by child-sacrificing idols. And so here, don't, don't defend yourself. Be silent. Listen. Shut up. This is what's going on. You have no defense, even if you wanted to try to defend yourself. You can't. Because how could you defend your actions of swearing to the Lord and swearing to Molech? You just can't. So stay silent. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. We've seen this imagery all throughout the minor prophets of these, the violence and the fraud and the oppression of the weak, all this type, all these types of people here, saying, I will punish all of them. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, 
So your study note says that it was in Jerusalem's north wall. So they actually had discovered fish bones in that area along that wall. So it would have been a fish market. And so that's why it was labeled the fish gate. It's where you'd go to get all your dried fish and everything. So cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, loud crash from the hills. So the second quarter, likely the western hill of Jerusalem, an area with newer, wealthier homes, your study note says, and then a loud crash from the hills. And so this crying and this wailing from all these surrounding areas, even within the city gates, these markets, and then on these hills. Verse 11, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. So the mortar is some kind of business location. For all the traders are no more, all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will do will not do good, nor will he do ill. So this really gets to the heart of their sentiment at this time where, you know, you can bow down to these pagan idols and you can also bow down to the Lord because their belief is just, well, he's just like all the other pagan idols. You know, you just stick the little idol on the shelf and you can pray to each one, maybe vary it up, pray to one on Monday, pray to the next on Tuesday because they're saying... It won't do good. The Lord will not do good or do ill. He's just there. He's just essentially useless is what they're saying. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Saw this with the promised land of, you know, you're going to inhabit a land for which you did not, you know, plant the fields or build the houses, that same type of language here. And so all their goods are going to be plundered and laid to waste here. The great day of the Lord is near. So again, this is the fall of Judah to the Babylonians, but also the last day, depending on where we're looking in this text. Have a both and in some instances. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and a thick darkness a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So again, he's speaking in this time of Josiah, trying to make these reforms, undoubtedly meeting some pushback and resistance to his attempts at reform. So Zephaniah is coming out and he's saying, hey, the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming near. It's hastening fast. Wake up. Listen to Josiah, make these reforms, for this is the end, that, you know, this day of wrath will come, this day of darkness and gloom. So again, some pull out imagery of even at Christ's crucifixion, this to some extent of this day of darkness, day of clouds and thick darkness, being that fulfillment of the complete execution of God's wrath there upon Christ. The day of trumpet blast and a battle cry will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. And if you're blind, you're fumbling around, you don't know where you're going because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Again, these are the words of the Holy Spirit inspiring Zephaniah here. So, the Lord speaks in this way. So maybe we should too. But 
neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So again, what do we have in our small catechism? In the second article of the Apostles' Creed, verses one us not with gold or silver, with his holy and precious blood. And so here that gold and silver, it's not gonna it's not gonna suffice on that day. What only will suffice is the blood of Christ to cover you from and protect you from that wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the Lord being a jealous God, I mean, you'd be pretty upset if, you know, your children or your wife or someone like that is, yeah, I, I love you. I love you, honey. Love you, dad. And then down the street, I love you too, you know. You'd be mad. And so the Lord is jealous here. He's saying, you are my children. I've done all these mighty acts, and you're going to worship these pagan gods down the street. What gives here? So he's filled with jealousy, and this fire will come on this day of judgment. Be full and sudden end. So it's complete end to all the inhabitants of the earth. Right on that cherry note, any questions, comments? Um, let's see the, uh, I forgot my question here, Barry. (laughs) I was going to ask, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it says that silver or gold does not suffice. Uh, but in, in that time, you know, the blood of Christ wasn't, what hadn't taken place yet, but Mm -hmm. was it the blood of, uh, the sacrifices in the, in the, uh, well, the temple wasn't there yet either. Well, yes, it was. I'm sorry. Yeah. So uh, that's what would have been better and, and more. Yeah. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, you know, yeah. you okay. holding to those sacrifices Just with the trust of the Messiah who is to come. I got you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Whose blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. And I get that language in Hebrews. Yeah. So on um, chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I, that's mysterious to me. What, that use of language, the Lord preparing a sacrifice. I only think of Christ when I think of that. So in this context, it, mm-hmm. I wonder what's going on there. Let's see if the... Verse 7. Yeah. The Lord preparing the sacrifice, the study note puts as kind of his people. So he's preparing this people. I think that's what they're saying. Nation of Judah, his guests are the foreign nation appointed by God to consume the sacrifice is the way that they're putting it. So his very own people being the, the sacrifice that's prepared. And so the fact that they will be, you know, destroyed in some respects, that they will be persecuted and cut down but that I don't know I don't really love that interpretation that they have the day of the Lord is near the Lord is because hmm. the consecration of his guests to consecrate, to make holy. So he's prepared the sacrifice and consecrated his guests. I'd be interested to see what Luther has to say on this in his commentary. I didn't bring it with me. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have it with me. Let me can... I do want to make a note of that, though, and see what, what Luther has to say. Yeah, it is kind of mysterious in this, in this context here. In my study, I should have looked at that. I just completely missed or glanced over that. 
Let me see. Mm-hmm. You speaking of Christ then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's already made that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I wish I had more more to offer there on that verse. I did make a note. I'm sure Luther has a lot to say, as he normally does on some things. Yeah, I don't really love the the study notes to consume the sacrifice. I don't know. Pastor, do you have any insight on this one? I was looking at something in Ecclesiastes. What, what verse are you on? One uh, seven. See a thirty four six. Says the sacrifice is a nation of Judah. I don't know, I hesitate to speak out of turn because I'm just kind of looking at it for the first time here. Yeah. But it does appear to be wrath, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. So the sacrifice would be his, his punishment, like viewing, I mean, it's a yeah. different way of thinking, right? But he's, um, and it might be a kind of like prophetic double entendre. Mm-hmm. Where you'd see Christ ultimately, but not immediately. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the... Yeah, so there's the punitive aspect. So then it wouldn't be the Lord's people there, because they're, in verse 8, it's kind of specified as the punishment of the officials and the king's son. Yeah, it's like not on the remnant, but on yeah. the wicked. Mm-hmm. Wicked Judah and the wicked leadership of Judah. Yeah. The remnant, not included and then the consecrated guests you know there's this um there's this motif in the minor prophet well no even in isaiah i think um where god calls all creation as the as the to bear witness against the wickedness of his people Mm -hmm. so i wonder if by parallel that's what he's doing but i don't know i'd have to look into it as well it's kind of a puzzling line yeah be silent before the Lord God. It's kind of the that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world held accountable to him, and here's the judgment. Sorry, I don't have anything. Uh, what's the study note do with it? I'm just thinking out loud here. Yeah, so they're saying the sacrifice is nation of Judah, and his guests are the foreign nation appointed by God to consume the sacrifice. Mm, yeah, just rhetorical then. I'll do some digging. I'll see what Luther has to say on that, too. Yeah, it's vivid language, and it's, and it's unusual language. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an unusual picture, to be sure. That's why I was kind of positing, that, and that's all it is, the, the almost prophetic double entendre of, mm-hmm. of ultimately we can read this in light of Christ, but not immediately. Immediately yeah. in context, it's, it's wrath. Mm-hmm. couple weeks too because we'll be off for christmas man ah it was all a ploy just for the cliffhanger you know gotta keep you coming back there we go yeah sure that's a reason yeah any other questions all right into chapter two gather together yes gather oh shameless nation so again, this shamelessness of them, again, harkening back to Philippians, the, they glory in their shame. So shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, 
before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. So again, just some overemphasizing here of all of verse 2 is pretty much speaking exactly the same thing. This burning anger of the Lord, this anger of the Lord, this day that will pass like chaff. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So again, this hiding away of the remnant, much like Zephaniah, if we take that second interpretation of his name to be him being hidden away in protection that perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord, so sheltered from that fire and that wrath that is coming. And then he speaks to several of the nations. It says, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, so in broad daylight for all the sea. And Elkron shall be uprooted. So these were the enemies of Judah here. So he's naming them specifically in verse 4. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds, and folds for flocks. So here's just great imagery where, again, this is in the context of all this destruction that's going to come. And so he's previously speaking of, you know, utter destruction, no inhabitants is, inhabitant is left. And he's saying, that land, you seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. Doesn't seem quite like bad news, though, does it? But for the wicked, when they've built up their cities and have these great military powers, to say that you're going to become like pastures and have sheep running around, it's not great news for you, is it? Be like L.A. or San Diego telling them, hey, you're going to become a pasture land. To us or to those who have lived here a while, it's pretty good news, actually, to return back to the good old days before the... Five came through and everything. Yeah, be nice. Some old pastures. Get the deer back. Yeah. So again, good news for some. Terrible news for the wicked here. That, you know, nature will take back this land, essentially. You'll be utterly decimated and become just like a meadow. But then we get the language of shepherds and folds and flocks. So great don't have to spell out that imagery of what that means for us. Again, great news for us that we would be those sheep that graze in the lands that once were our enemies' lands that are now destroyed and are nothing more than pastures now. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. Here it gets spelled out clearly, the remnant that they will come into possession of this land that is destroyed, on which they shall graze. So the remnant, the faithful ones of God, will graze as sheep, with their good shepherd being the head of them. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. And so here to go back to the point from earlier on with the sheep, and the lifting up of their heads. Here we get the imagery of them lying down at evening. So we see that in Psalm 4 of, you know, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The fact that we can, you know, lie down at evening, go and sleep in peace, knowing that we are protected from many dangers, and that even if those dangers should come, we're still protected. So we can lie down and sleep at evening in peace. 
and not have to fear any of the wolves coming in or anything because Christ the Good Shepherd lays down his life for us. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. So the imagery of Sodom and Gomorrah, need I say any more? You will be like them, utterly laid to waste for Moab and the Ammonites here be possessed by nettles and salt pits. So nettles are little pokey plants that are super annoying. So these nettles and salt pits just absolutely lay to waste for Moab and the Ammonites. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. So their lot is the, speaking again of the people, the Ammonites, of Moab. So this is their lot in return for their pride. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in in her midst, all kinds of beasts. And some crazy animals here. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. So he's once great and mighty capitals. Instead of being the inhabitants of you know, great and mighty warriors with chariots and spears. It's going to be owls and some hedgehogs running around, lying waste to their capital, running everywhere, pooping on all their idols and everything. So this is the image that all these wild animals that you wouldn't expect to be in, you know, urban areas are going to come in and have their way with the capital. A voice shall hoot in the window, Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a liar for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. So again here, speaking of Nineveh, in this desolation and the owls and the hedgehogs coming in. We've only got a couple minutes, but the chapter break here is just not a good one. And so that way we don't forget kind of the rhetoric that he's pulling in here. He's going to continue on. And so as, again, mentally, you know, delete this chapter division. So everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist, again, speaking of Nineveh, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Yeah, Nineveh, the oppressing city, this rebellious and defiled city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Ooh, maybe he's not speaking of Nineveh anymore. Who's he speaking about now? Yeah, we'll continue on. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle. Uh Uh-oh. Now it's clear who he's speaking about even more. Treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. 
So again, this great uh, rhetorical device that he's using here. Of, again, no divisions, no nothing. So if you were just reading this, it goes from this destruction of Nineveh and then woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. You imagine the people in Judah reading this of, ooh, yeah, Nineveh is pretty wicked, wicked place. And he starts talking about drawing near to her God and all these. And, oh, maybe we should too turn back to God for all of our wickedness, all the defiling that we've done, all of our priests that are profaning what is holy. So that's exactly what Josiah the king is trying to do at this time, is to return them back to that faithfulness. And so Zephaniah here uses this rhetoric to help aid him in that, that they would turn back and to be faithful to the Lord once more, return in repentance to their God. Right. Looks like we're out of time. Are there any final questions before we end off? Yeah, we never get to the good gospel in our spacing of everything. It's we get gospel, the previous book, and then we get right into the law and all right to the Lord be with you, and then we move on. So hopefully we'll get back on track a little bit and we'll enjoy some of the great gospel of Zephaniah. But then we'll see you all in a couple weeks, and so the Lord be with you.